This week on A to Z Running, biosensor industry expert Meredith Cass joins us to discuss what we need to know about these technologies. In running news, Valencia Half Marathon was just as crazy as promised. Bowerman Track Club might be collapsing in real time, and Olympic rankings and quotas are officially released, and it's fascinating. All this and more this week on A to Z Running. Welcome back to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive with information, inspiration, and training services. I'm Andy. And I'm Zach. And just a reminder that you can learn more about our services and supports for runners at A to Z Running.com or follow us on all the places where you follow things. We're on Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, and other ones, I'm sure. Did I, did I get it? Is that right? Yeah. Pretty much. Hey, welcome to. back, Andy. <laughs> Let's all just clap. We are so excited to not have to listen to Zach by himself anymore. More specifically, <laughs> we are so excited to hear the mellifluous sounds of Andy's voice. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to be back. Mm, that's so good. <laughs> Tell us something interesting, Andy, about when you were gone. Because it's just been so long since we've heard your voice and seen your uh, face. Well, I am back to some running and that yes. was fun. Yeah, I was in Dallas, Texas for a work trip for a month and I was able to run on the Katy Trail, which was fun. Mm. What's really cool about the Katy Trail is that there is a portion of the trail that is made of track surface. What? No. Yes. And you didn't tell me this. Great. This yeah. is actually basically the first time Andy and I have talked to each other <laughs> since she got back. So anything she That's says to you is news to me as well. That's not true. But I really do enjoy it. I think it's really neat that they have that for runners. That and then cool. on the other side, you could also run, which is like a normal path. But mm. the bikes are on there too. So I prefer the pedestrian track little section when that opportunity came up. Yeah. Stay away from those bikes. It was just a tight area. It was just, no, oh. I love people who are on bikes oh. too, but it's Sorry. such a tight area. Yes, we love bikes. So Dallas locals, shout out. You've got yeah, a cool run-in spot, it sounds like. You do, nice. definitely. I do have to say, though, something that was perplexing about Dallas runners is that even when it was 90 degrees, some people were wearing half zips and hoodies no. while running in full tights. That's inappropriate. You should it not was, do that. It was surprising because I was in a tank top and sweating. Yes, profusely. but that's because you are not used to 150 degrees on the regular. I guess, but 90? Cool weather. <laughs> Basically winter. All right, well, let's get started with your questions. And here we are with the best moment of the week when we get to hear your questions and answer them because that's what we love to do the sure most. Is. And you should ask them so that we have them to answer and hear. And you can do that by going to a to z running.com slash question. A to z running.com slash question. Mm -hmm. Anytime, ask away. We'll throw a few of them on air every week, and we love it. We sure do. From Jesse, hi, Andy and Zach. I was wondering if you could cover the topic of returning to running after a serious injury and or surgery with mm. regards to overcoming the mental fear and anxiety of re-injury. I'm doing well getting back into running, but finding it hard to trust that I'm okay I feel so nervous that something will break. I figure a lot of people struggle with these mental hurdles and perhaps it might be a topic you have some insight on. Thanks so much. 
Yes, a lot of people do. Yeah, in, people... in fact, probably most. Most people after a major injury or surgery, definitely. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm just saying that I I can feel I feel like I could have written this, Jesse, because mm. I have struggled with the same things that you're struggling with right now with mental fear and anxiety about re-injury. So what helps? Well, there's a few things that help. I think that having and you're doing this already, Jesse, but having those people around you that are able to give you tangible insight into it, like going to a PT and going to the doctor for them to tell you like what pain is okay, what is mm. not okay. Well, I, not pain being okay, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like if there's a discomfort that you can actually work through or what that means. Or what to expect in terms yeah. of those discomforts. Yeah. Right. And like training yourself to interpret the signals of your body as data not as a warning sign necessarily for your demise but rather like oh okay well this is what i need to work on so for me i have had to do that same thing i have had to interpret so like something is feeling off okay well that means i need to spend the next day maybe not running maybe i need to do mobility for my full allotted time that i have available to me for the day and work on this thing because my body told me that yesterday but trusting that, that's how we develop trust is listening to the signals and figuring out what our body is trying to tell us. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of probably the main two parts that we would suggest in terms of developing what we need to have to face those moments. One is the support and the people around us that know the stuff and can help advise very specifically. And the other is that intuition sense of what, how am I feeling? How should I be feeling? And getting a sense for whether or not before the the pain right before the major concern is there what are the things that don't feel the way they should that lead up to that and that's a tough that's a tough thing it is really tough most runners would not be able to say i um based on how i'm feeling right now i think i'm approaching injury or i'm approaching a bad state until after the fact right and then we start to say hey, i kind of knew some warning signs or I kind of noticed some things were not quite right. Um, and whether we ignore them or whether we dismiss them as, you know, that's just part of the thing. And I just, uh, that's the way it always is. Or whether we just want really badly for it not to be true, right? A kind of denial perhaps, but also a kind of optimism in most runners where it's like, ah, but I, I can get through this because this isn't so bad and I'll be all right like all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we have to fight against those bad tendencies in terms of patterns of thought. Um, but also we have, we have to know like there are certain things and this is the, when it comes down to major injuries, surgeries and such, um, there are certain things we can do that reduce the potential for future concern. Right. And so some of that comes from like, return to sport protocols from your medical people and you do the things that they tell you to do and you do it in the way they tell you to do it and you don't rush it and you don't try to cut any corners because whether or not that is literally exactly what you should be doing in your specific instance, it still is good practice for anyone in your experience. And so you do that um, because that's why they have the protocols. But beyond that, as a runner, we also have certain things that we need. And most of our major issues come from dearths in some capacity in our development. And so I go back to the basics. Anytime I'm returning from major problems, um, 
anytime we're advising an athlete in that situation, we go back to all the basics. We have to rebuild the whole thing from the ground up. And we have to do so in a way that minimizes as many of the gaps as possible, closes them. And so do all the things <laughs> and take your time. Don't rush anything. Do them in the right order because there is a proper order to things. Running fast is the very last thing that we get to way down the road. Running long, we don't rush into that, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And we've actually had this conversation before, Jesse, I believe, about how sometimes our abilities exceed our like aerobic ability exceeds what our body structurally is able to do and so we're very tempted to run faster than we should because we feel good aerobically but your foot's feeling wonky your form is feeling off because your hips are not right there's there's all these things structurally that might be going on and it's difficult to be patient because we feel like the effort is easy. Hmm. So I guess that's another piece of the returning uh, to running and that trust that we're developing with ourselves that we have to trust that we need all these pieces, that our desire and our ability to do something are going to have to be patient with our structural side of things in order for all the pieces to come together for us. Yeah, that's right. You got to build it in the right order and don't rush it. But the fear and anxiety piece of it too, there's so much, there's so many layers to this onion that I don't want to just dismiss, you know, because there are so many things that can be triggers for us, that things that have happened like, oh, my foot started hurting this way before I was out for three months. Like, and then that fear sets in and then we, we worry and we contemplate what to do. And so I don't want to, I don't want to glaze over like that there are these real things that are happening and real anxiety that can cause us to have have the symptoms of anxiety like you know sleeplessness and you know your heart rate will accelerate all kinds of things. So I guess at that point I would take deep breaths and I would analyze what what the purpose of your running is because if it's stealing if it's stealing your joy and it's making you anxious we have to rewire how we we're letting running serve us so maybe that is going back to the the basics like zach is saying and um getting ourselves getting ourselves right so that we can rebuild um but yeah there's so much to this i feel like we could have done a whole episode about it and he's going deep here just going deep yeah yeah. Well, I'm very passionate about it and I don't feel like we fully closed on, on an answer for you, but, um, I do, do want to tell you that a lot of us have gone through it and it's really hard. Well, th yeah, these aren't the kinds of things that you just do certain things and you just solve the problem. That That's not how this kind of stuff works. And so you have to be a little bit more comprehensive than that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking, Jesse. Let us know and follow up if there are more ways we can address specifically what you're thinking about. Now, this next question, we wanted to we wanted to grab this one and fit it in here, too, um, partly because two different people asked almost the same question, unbeknownst to one another. And so whenever that happens, it's like, yeah, we, we should probably <laughs> we should probably do that. Um, OK, so first I was uh, in, in a conversation entirely unrelated, but in a conversation with Josh. And he says, um, you know, treadmills. <laughs> Because it's that time of year for those of us in the Midwest and other parts of the world uh, that, you know, treadmills are on our minds. Uh, so treadmills. Well, um, the question being, like, do we need it? How important is the treadmill in terms of 
being able to train at a high consistency level. And so I thought, oh, that's a that's an interesting question. You know, it's not just a, a point of like, how do we just find a way to endure and suffer and survive the treadmill? But is it really that important? And what does that look like? And then Allie asked later in the same day, <laughs> asked, um, well, so treadmills, <laughs> I hate them. Um, I don't know if she said that specifically, but we don't we don't love treadmills often as runners. And so she says, OK, um, but also we know that treadmill running is not quite the same training stimulus as running on ground that isn't moving under you. And as a result, may be, and it's true, a, a lower level of fitness building than other running. So should I just, you know, maybe I shouldn't do it at all. Maybe it's detrimental to, to spend too much time on the treadmill and should I avoid it? So and these two questions kind of intersecting at the important point of like, what's the treadmill doing for me? And is, should I be doing that? So thank you for asking both of you. Now our thoughts. Um, first, on the side of the importance of the treadmill, my answer to that is always as these things go, um, runners who often are going to experience difficulty training in terms of like regular, like running outside normal types of things. And there's lots of reasons, you know, it's dark and you don't have lights. <laughs> it's not safe. It's uh, weather not, doesn't permit it. All the other things, right? There's lots of reasons. Um, we, when possible, need other options. And there's lots of decent options out there. But for running, the best other option is the treadmill when we can handle it because it's the closest thing to the real running we do on solid ground. So the answer there, Josh, is um, in large part, a treadmill when we have access to something like that is usually an essential component in maintaining consistency. That doesn't mean that we can't do without it in some general kinds of situations. Um, I would simply say that if it is something that we have an option for, it's going to make a major positive difference because it keeps us regular in the, we don't have any time that the situation is, I can't do this run outside. That creates a barrier for runners. Even if you have other options, it still creates a barrier because now you have to make a specific choice to still do your running activity. Whereas before you might've just done it because you just, that's your normal routine, right? So you have to minimize the disruptions to the routine as much as you can in this sport as adults, especially who have other things in life going on. So that's why the treadmill is huge because if you have the opportunity to say, ah, I can just go downstairs on the treadmill um, or walk down the street to the gym and jump on the treadmill, whatever the thing is, if that's an easy option for you, it's going to ensure the likelihood consistency. However, this is why Ali's question is an important caveat. A treadmill is not a full replacement, a one-to-one -one replacement for running outside. And so I also need to not let the treadmill be this default, like, eh, I just don't want to have to like put on more clothes and go run in the cold. Or I just don't want to have to like deal with, you know, going outside. I can just go down to my basement and run on the treadmill. And that suddenly becomes kind of the default. And I realize that really I'm just basically running on the treadmill all the time, even when I probably would be fine running outside. When that's the case, now we've got a different layer of concern. And this is why Allie asked the question at all. You're right, Allie, treadmill's not as effective for training stimulus. And you know this most evidently when you spend a lot of time on the treadmill and then you try to run a race outside. When you do that, usually it doesn't feel the way you think it should because you've been so much time on a treadmill. So our thought here is 
have the treadmill when you can because it's a great asset. But do not make the treadmill the default experience as a runner because it's not as effective. And if there's a, a balance we would aspire toward, then Ali, in, in any situation, I think you want to spend less than half the time on the treadmill if you can help it mm-hmm. so that you're getting some kind of like regular exchange between the two. And like Zach said, it, it is really good because it's good near muscularly because you're doing the same, you're, you're running and yeah. it's also great because it's going to grow your aerobic fitness and maintain your consistency. So the treadmill is, is real running. It's just the matter of, you know, being able to have the, the ground beneath you that you're having those, um, really quick reactions, your neuromuscular reactions to different surfaces. Also the surface itself, you're not building the, you're not getting the same amount of load. So you're not getting the, the bone density or the strength in your legs as much as you would if you were outdoors and then all the modulation. So that's why we do recommend if you are to do treadmill running to change your incline, you probably heard that piece of uh advice by many many people in the running industry but yes change that uh incline as you're running yeah don't run at the same set speed the entire time mess with the incline throughout that kind of we stuff. also caution against doing workouts on the treadmill like fast she's talking about fast running don't run fast on treadmills unless you do unless you do train on treadmills like strictly that yeah you have to work your way up to it so let's say you're in the dead of winter and you've been running most of your runs outside and then you have to jump and do a fart like on a treadmill that is a huge risk for injury yeah yeah because it requires your legs to move slightly differently and it's not (laughs) speed it is not uh it's not quite as natural a running motion on the treadmill and the higher the speed the more exaggerated that unnatural motion becomes and so not ideal to run fast on treadmills. So there you have it. We have answered all your questions, which is always a wonderful feeling, is it not? And if you have more, go to adzrunning.com slash question and ask them for next time. For now, let's get on to something helpful. As promised, we are addressing this topic of biosensors thoroughly. And I enjoy that because this is something fascinating in the running industry. Let me uh, caveat this because I've been talking about um, the data side of things uh, with a number of you directly, but also in general, um, we have shared quite a bit on this podcast, our perspective on data. And uh, so we're pursuing on this series, trying to really understand what kinds of information can be collected and how effective that information collection is and then how actionable it is as well. And so in order to really better understand this, as you might guess, we do we do the independent research ourselves. We always enjoy doing that kind of thing and reading all the stuff. Um, but we also like to talk to the people who are most closely involved in it and get some of those opinions. And so this week we have uh, the first of two interviews with this guest. Um, the first interview here is going to tackle the concept at large of biosensors and what the industry is doing with that technology right now. And then the second conversation is focused on a specific biosensor, the one she developed herself, in fact, and uh, we'll be able to dive further into that next time. So here we have guest Meredith Cass. Nick's Biosensors is led by founder and CEO Meredith Cass, a graduate of Harvard Business School. Nice. 
former vice chair and nine-time marathoner. So she talks the talk and walks the walk. Or runs the walk. Well, well I runs mean, and no, walks. She runs the run, in <laughs> fact, Andy. Since the launch of Nix's first product last December, that was December 2022, the Nix Hydration Biosensor, Meredith was selected for Inc.'s 2023 Female Founder 200 list, congrats, for developing a biotechnological solution that helps soldiers, athletes, and hard labor workers stay adequately hydrated. So with creds like that, can't deny that this is a conversation worth listening to with some insight you don't want to miss. So let's get right on to our conversation with Meredith Cass. Meredith, welcome to A to Z Running. So glad to be able to have you on with us here. And we just shared with the audience a little bit about you and a little bit about what we're going to try to be discussing. Before we get into the topic of biosensing, though, can you just tell us a bit about what brings you to this industry and particularly to Nick's at this point in your life? It's kind of a funny coincidence for me. So I was a basketball player in college. I started running longer distances, probably my early to mid thirties. Um, and all of that was sort of concurrent with a career in healthcare. And so there's this really interesting intersection for me of like consumer health and consumer wellness um, that coincided with, uh, you know, a little bit of an athletic career where, especially on the running side, I really struggled with hydration. So the confluence of those two things and kind of, my whole career kind of being in this early stage startup type scene kind of brought me to starting next. Right on, right on. I'm curious. So you said struggles with hydration. Um, how, how did you know, like what was going wrong and what things weren't happening that should have been, how do you know hydration was an issue? It's a really good question because candidly, I'm not sure I really knew conclusively. I just knew I didn't feel good and I didn't feel strong on certain runs. And the obvious correlation for me was when it was hot and humid, I just felt like trash. And I didn't I didn't necessarily know why. I didn't know if I was fueling improperly or or what. Um, and so candidly, I, I don't even know that I necessarily conclusively knew that my hydration was the thing contributing to me having runs that didn't feel good. Um, until I developed the sensor and I, I sort of reconciled what I thought was a high sweat rate. So I sort of perceived myself as a very heavy sweater. Turns out I'm not at all. I'm like a low to moderate sweater. And I really just had no idea just because I, I guess I just felt like I was struggling. Um, I felt like I was just getting it wrong. And so, um, I was in fact improperly hydrating. Um, but you know, I was really able to sort of myth bust, um, a little bit of my own, you know conceived notions right right I'm, I'm curious um and this may not be a thing that you can precisely answer accurately but if you had a ballpark guess how many runners do you feel like get their hydration wrong oh my god so many and it kind of depends on um we do have a lot of data that sort of informs that decision but um i mean there's some data that suggests it's like up to 80 percent um and that can be more commonly on the dehydration side, but on the overhydration side too. That's an interesting point. Um, I was just reviewing some research on, uh, tragically, on deaths during marathons. And yeah. one of the fascinating things is cause of death in marathons, um, how people don't realize how many times overhydration is also a, a risk. And so people just don't, they, we don't know. We don't know. And we're, we're just kind of guessing as we're in the midst of things, hoping we're getting it right. And usually letting how we feel 
be the barometer, which as as we've come to learn with things like this, how I feel in this exact moment is not an accurate representation of my total hydration picture because by that point, I'm probably a little too late if I'm feeling something now that I should have been doing something about all along. But. It's so true. And maybe on that same theme of feelings meeting, uh, sort of leading us astray, I actually was mildly hyponatremic or overhydrated at the 2014 Boston Marathon. It was a beautiful day, like, you know, mid-70s. Um, but I felt intensely thirsty. And so I thought I was dehydrated because it was a warmer day. And of course, I'm just chugging water, chugging water. Um, I didn't have a great race day. So I was out there for a good um, number of hours, unfortunately, on the unshaded course. Anyone who's run Boston knows there's no shade on the course. Um, and uh, and yeah, so it's, you know, what you think you're sensing can be very much misleading. I believe it. I believe it. And then we're going to get into more of that. Um, before we do, then, can we zoom out and... Um, Share with us more about the industry at large of biosensing. And I think if I were to caveat this slightly, most people understand the concept of like a heart rate monitor and how they work in general. Um, but at the same time, this is a very broad field. And I've encountered many different kinds of products out there and all making different kinds of promises as, as to what they may or may not be supporting. But what's what's going on here in this industry? What, what can you share with us? Well, well, partly what I find really fascinating is I think of biosensing as this space in between wearables and like medical diagnostics. And that may be very specific having come from the healthcare industry, but um, I really do see biosensing as the opportunity for consumers to have, you know, a greater hand in their, in their healthcare. At next, we call it self-health. So it really is this concept of, you know, there are certain things that wearables enabled in recent years with step counts and recovery and activity. And, you know, it's up for debate whether some of those metrics are what we would call biometric. Um, and then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got these medical diagnostics, which are decidedly biometric, right? We're looking at different molecules. We're looking at electrochemical sensing methods. It's you know, kind of these two different worlds. And so my definition of biosensing is really this sort of white space in between. So how do we use these molecular and electrochemical sensing methods that are more validated, more personalized, more um, accurate, most likely, and, and really still leverage some of these great gifts from the wearables world of, you know, being priced and designed, um, hopefully very elegantly and affordably for consumer use. Right on. So if, if, if you're connecting those dots in, in a sense in, in this field. Okay. I think so. And I think, and you know, it comes from a long trend again with my background in healthcare of sort of further consumerization and just uh, to get on my soapbox for just a quick second, the, you know, our healthcare system in this country was really built around preventing death, not so much promoting health. And so in many ways, the impetus has become even more and more on the consumer to advocate for their health and wellness and to really be thinking about promoting health as opposed to just preventing sickness. So being able to do that with convenient tools at home that are going to give you data in a format that you can understand as a consumer, because most of us aren't doctors or researchers, um, and to have it be done in a really simple way, like do this now, is really valuable. And so that's what we've tried to become. That's awesome. That's awesome. Something simple that we can apply 
in their day-to-day -day lives. I like it. Uh, so I'm curious then, in, in your understanding and your experiences as well as your opinions around these things, what, what is the biosensing sphere doing especially well right now and where are its most apparent limitations or shortcomings? I think most biosensors, and it's definitely a burgeoning field. I mean, there's not a lot of companies that I would define as sort of um, within this definition of, of biosensors. But I think what they're doing well is delivering on that mission of kind of putting this data in consumers' hands and on topics that they've never really been able to, to have, you know, at their disposal before, whether it's about metabolic health or hydration or, um, you know, a whole range of really interesting topics. Um, my gripe with biosensors, is that it's not always affordable. And so this kind of plays on two sides for me. From the consumer side, it makes it difficult for this really exciting technology to become adopted. Um, you know, sometimes upwards of $400 a month. It's a lot of money. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, a lot of my time in healthcare was spent as a venture capitalist. And so I think about scalability of businesses and I see price points like that. Um, and my complaint there is you're not going to be able to grow that business. And so I, I really, you know, it's important to me that biosensing is sort of accessible because if it's going to scale, not just financially, but if we're going to start to change the way that we practice healthcare in this country, it does have to be something that's a scalable and, you know, a sort of affordable um, and accessible solution for the masses. What, uh, what, what helps make that happen? Is there more innovation needed at times, better improvement on how they integrate the technologies into something simple? Or is it the incentive structure? You know, people, the companies don't necessarily have a major incentive to produce these things, or what do you think? I think the first one is um, there's not as much collaboration as we might like to think between sort of the consumer electronics side of the world, which is really sort of engineering driven, and the medical research side of the world. Um, they are two very different disciplines. They are two very different paths. So an expert in each case is going to go down a very different path. And we would like to think that there's a lot more collaboration happening there than there is. And so that, I think, is, is sort of barrier number one. Um, barrier number two is that if you're developing something more in this engineering vein or consumer electronics vein, which would really lead us more towards wearables, there are certain technologies that are either still a little expensive when we think about, you know, edge computing, when we're trying to run these massive machine learning or AI models. This is a, one of our key issues at Next. You know, how do we think about the expense of certain um, technologies like that? Um, the good news is a lot of those price points are coming down, which I think is why, you know, people have been trying to build hydration sensors and other types of biosensors for years, but they just weren't really feasible from a consumer perspective because they were too big or too expensive, um, too clunky, you know, things like that. Yeah. And I have to say, we'll talk about it more in detail in a little bit, but uh, having worn the Nix sensor a number of times and a number of different levels of effort and running and such, uh, it it's the best kind of thing I think for these types of uh, wearables is that you can forget about them and yeah. not all of them out there allow for that, but this one does. I, so yeah. we'll, uh, I look forward to the more of that conversation. Um, okay. So I'm curious then as, um, as you think about uh, endurance sports specifically, our audience is runners predominantly. And um, so we spend a lot of time talking about endurance athletics and um, in that, realm what kinds of biometrics do you feel are the most important for a runner to know about both in the midst of activity and or 
immediate data afterward. What are your thoughts? This is really sort of self-centered in this answer, just as a runner myself and somebody who picked it up a little bit later in life as well, is um, anything where we currently advise a runner to use trial and error, I feel there could be a better solution. And so I think that's certainly true with fueling and hydrating. We do a lot of like, see what works, try something on this long run, try something on that long run and don't do anything new on race day, right? So if we think about where we're allowing people to guess or encouraging them to guess, there's an opportunity for for improvement there. Um, hydration, obviously, we'll dig into this more later, but just wherever there's like a general guideline that's also really, really broad because there's so much variability, I think there's also an incredible opportunity there to really tailor, um, you know, the approach that we're that we're making. Mm-hmm. Um, the other way to look at it is sort of the level of impact that these different factors have on either performance or safety or injury prevention. And so, you know, sleep, I think, is probably one that we're now still learning it has this enormous potential with respect to recovery and readiness and um, healing from injury and all that kind of thing. But um, you know, when it's when it comes right down to what are the biggest, factors that are going to impact whether you have a good run or a bad run or you know something like that i think we continue to come back to like fueling hydrating and fitness level right just your ability to train those are kind of the three highest impact um things that if you can really dial those in you're probably going to be pretty well set up for success i like that i like that fueling hydrating and fitness level uh, or, or in some sense, readiness to engage yes. level. Yeah, that, that's um, that's huge. If I may, Meredith, a moment. Just thinking about um, so many of the things. You know, like a cadence monitor, for instance. A cadence yeah. monitor is an interesting thing to know, but it it remains true that there's not a cadence that is the thing you must have. As a matter of fact, for almost mm-hmm. every runner, your cadence is different depending on how hard you're running, depending yeah. on the terrain you're running, and it's and uphill or downhill. So. Um, there's something to that where we have these we have these conceptually that we're measuring in different capacities that don't necessarily mean something uh, or they're not meaningfully impacting the, the results we're aspiring toward or the thing we're trying to do. So then you take into account something like fueling hydration where uh, there's a performance implication. There's a general wellness implication, like what's healthy, um, which also impacts recovery, which also has to do with how you're just feeling in the moment. And um, and to be able to take an area for a runner, uh, that trial and error you mentioned, to take the guess out of it and know that the way I'm engaging with this is optimized or closer to optimized. Not, I, none of these, these things are likely perfect for all people at all times, right. um, which, you know, because it's health and human studies and those things are what they are. Right. But so I, I enjoy um, engaging with the like the abstract. These are really interesting things to know side of data. Um, but I have found so much of it to be mostly arbitrary when it comes to yeah. doing the thing well and better and enjoying it well. And- Completely. I will say one of my biggest struggles too, and I, I should say too, it's it's funny when I um, have these conversations and sort of talk about myself as a runner. I'm not like, a, I'm not a talented runner. Um, you know, I'm a middle to back of the pack or I'm like a four and a half hour marathoner, but 
Um, the pacing was actually something that I really struggled with as well. It's like, you know, I, I, again, I don't have a long history as a runner. I've now been running probably 10 years. So not a, a super long time and grow up running, but for me to say, all right, I've got a 5k on Saturday, or I've got a marathon I'm training for in three months, you know, for me to try to figure out well, what should my target pace be? Like how out of breath should I actually be? And am I going to go out too fast and burn myself out? Or am I going to hit the finish line knowing that I had more in the tank? So I think it's the exact same mentality when I'm thinking about fueling and hydrating is like, give me a number, like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And that's, it's funny. We hear that feedback a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you, so you kind of said it in a couple of different ways there. I, I want to dwell on this a moment because you said, uh, how fast should I run pacing and how out of breath should I be? Uh, which is like an, like exertional data, right? Yeah. And so in that sense, that's one of the other concerns that the running industry in some, in some capacities levies against biosensing, which is this idea of we take the, um, the, in, the intuition of the sport out of me and put it in some kind of uh, objective metric. And now if I'm developing as an athlete, what I'm developing is reliance on these objective measures and what they're telling me, as opposed to understanding how I'm exerting and my efforts and how I'm feeling and some of that kind of stuff. So yeah. how do you justify, because I don't necessarily think it's, I don't think it's black and white like that in all senses at all times, but there are some things that tend more toward one side or the other. Uh, how do we make good decisions about that kind of thing when we choose to use these tools? It's such an important question. And I completely agree. I mean, if, you know, to use GPS as an example, it's like, you know, as soon as I started using GPS to get anywhere, I, I have completely lost my sense of direction. I don't know if that resonates with you or yeah. your listeners, but it, you know, I, I use my GPS to get to like my gym, which I go to multiple times a week. So, um, so I think the key honestly is to see how you can marry the two. How do you either use the data to either confirm or, or disprove what you know to be true or think to be true? Um, how do you overlay a certain data point or data stream with, um, with how you feel? Right. So I think, you know, my hope is that biosensing ends up, you know, adding a new data set into sort of the mental math for you. I think it does just have to be an art form of, you know, there are going to be people for whom you really do have to bring it all the way to the end and say, do this now. And then there are going to be other people, um, thankfully, a lot in the endurance industry that are going to dig into that data on their own and marry it with, all right, well, I was this hydrated when I was going this fast or I felt this good and start to really customize what that solution looks like for them. Yeah, I I, I like the thought because it's... Um... It's finding how they're contributing to each other as opposed to choosing one or the other, which matters. Mm -hmm. The example a friend of mine often gives, uh, she's diabetic and she's got the sensor attached and it beeps yeah. at her, right? And so, and and she'll say, you know, if, if, if that weren't beeping at me, I would likely be in a life-threatening situation before I knew it, before I felt something that indicated. And so, you know, there's a, there's a level of intuitive growth we aspire toward, but there's also a need for how these things can improve our capacity to do it, whether that means improving our intuition or sometimes because our intuition isn't accurate and we need to. Right, right. That's good. Exactly. Good. So biosensing, if I can make a brief summary statement, biosensing is in a, is a, in a fledgling state as an industry in some sense. Um, certainly some areas have been around quite a bit longer than others, but 
as it were, in a developing industry, um, it's in a position right now where there's a lot of potential value and we can leverage that value, um, but it's not all uh, perfect all the time. Join us in thanking Meredith one more time. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you for your time there and your time next week because we're going to bring back, uh, bring you back for uh, uh, the extension of the conversation. I, I so appreciate the overall perspective that we need to understand that there's a place for these technologies, um, but they have to be able to essentially meet a certain kind of threshold to be a viable option. And that's a really important caveat and one that helps me understand, too, why it's not so simple as you know heart rate monitors for instance like there's so much more involved in these kinds of things so what we what we glean at this point is that the industry is up to some fascinating things and we've got some really important considerations going on there so now our next step is to dive further into some of the products that are out on the market we'll bring meredith back next week to talk about one in particular and continue the conversations from there for now we need to get on to the world of running. Quick correction to my own words last week um, when I was announcing some of the races. I also need to add to the list. Uh, Marjorie ran in the half marathon last weekend as well. So congrats, Marjorie. It's great to talk with you about it as well. This week, the Valencia half marathon was absolutely crazy. Really fast performances. On the men's side, Kibiwat Candy won. He's the former world record holder. He ran the fourth fastest time in history at the race to win in 57.40. And this Brutal. is his third win in Valencia. So his little hat trick. Is that what you call it? Hat trick? That or is a hat trick. Yes. Turkey and bowling. Is that it? Wow. I think. Oh, yeah. Three strikes. Uh, just a quick note about that. Uh, Valencia half and full, by the way, but especially the half is the like premier half marathon globally at this point. It's like if you want to run a fast half marathon, that's where the fastest people run. And I don't know exactly how these things tend to happen over time and manifest, but it has become the case. And so the fact that Kibiwat Candy has three victories at what is clearly the half marathon in the world, it, it really says something. We, we should note that. He is like the best half marathon racer that's ever lived. Mm-hmm. Now, doesn't currently have the world record because, you know, Jacob Capolimo just edged his record out by like a couple of seconds. But he's still, it, he's something to watch. Second place was Yamash Kajelcha, and he was, uh, sorry, he got a national record for mm. Ethiopia, which is no small feat of 57.41. One second behind. This was a race. This was a race. And third was within the same official time, I believe. Yeah, they were almost tied across the line. Hagos Geberwet. And then fourth place was Selman Barrega, who ran 57.50. I'm sorry, 57.50 in the second half marathon of his career. Wow. So that's second, third, and fourth were all fourth Ethiopian men. men under, <laughs> four men under 58 minutes. Wow. That's, I'm just marveling for a moment. <laughs> But we're not done with news from the men. <laughs> National record for Spain, Carlos Mayo ran 59.39, and he was 13th place overall. His record was 22 years old that he wow. ended up breaking. National record also for Portugal, Samuel Bartara ran 
59.40 for 14th place, and that was a 26-year-old record. So so old just, records going down. Yeah, making it happen. Now, on the women's side, there are some interesting notes here. Margaret Chalimo won in a personal best time of 104.46, and this is an all-time top 10 finish time. Blazing. There's a Spanish national record from Laura Lungo. She ran 109.41 to place 11th. And then later on in the race, there was a world 65-year-old master's record from nice. Rosa Moda. She was Portugal's 1988 Olympic marathon champion. No. So she's like been good for a long time, no. apparently. That's so cool. Yeah, she lowered her own record from 126.16 to 126.13. Three seconds. Do <laughs> it. Valencia. Do it. And speaking of age group records, I'm going to throw this little bonus in here because we didn't mention it for the Chicago news. But Jenny Hitchings ran a 60 to 64 age group world record at the Chicago Marathon of 2.49.43, which is wow. so fast. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thanks to Brandon for sending this my way because I needed to see this. Yep. In route, she also ran the half marathon American record of 1.23.39, which was her previous. <laughs> she, she previously held the record. In fact, I think it was just a few weeks before she had broken it. And then broke it at oh, the goodness. Chicago Marathon through halfway. But not only that, she also got American records in the 15K, the 20K, the 25K, and the 30K at Chicago. Which apparently are all things. Yeah. Now, I guess I didn't realize they must have had mats at every yeah, one of those Yeah, I do Ks. know that Chicago is one of those races that you can get uh, those times validated. Because I remember, I think Jordan has said, didn't she have the 25K American oh, record. Yeah. So there are yeah, official right. timing mats throughout the Chicago Marathon. So that's a race that people will go to try to get some of those more obscure race distances. Just run fast and you get it all, apparently, <laughs> I guess. as Hitchings has demonstrated. Right on. So that, that, was, uh, that was an exciting little bit of extra news. All right. So next up on the list here, as teased in the introduction, um, we got to talk about Bowerman Track Club for a moment because the the chatter all over the place is it appears that what is has been the best professional track club in the United States appears to just be falling apart and that's not that surprising given what's been going on so we wanted to share that a little bit of that with you give you some context and the, the most recent news that kind of made the conversation happen more is that Grant Fisher just left the group. Mm -hmm. Grant Fisher, the Grant Fisher, he holds four American records or has broken four American records in the last two years. I don't know if he holds all four still, but um, four American records, the most recent one just a couple weeks ago. And so it's not like Grant Fisher's like struggling to, you know, perform and stuff under this new, you know, this, or not this new, but under this team, he's running great. And yet he left the team. That tells you something. Okay. When someone is highly successful in an environment and yet leaves that environment that's not that doesn't tell you something about that athlete that tells you something about that environment so that brought the conversation mm -hmm. more to a four which is why we're talking about it now and here are the things you need to know first um that group in the last decade or so uh overtook any others in the united states as clearly the most accomplished um most championship titles, most record sets, all that kind of most stuff. Most Olympians. Most Olympians, like all of those things, right? Um, now, that's not to say there haven't been other successful groups, but they just simply rose to the top um, during a certain period of time. 
and then kind of stagnated. And some people said, okay, the part of the beginning of their stagnation was when Shelby Houlihan's whole fiasco with the doping ban thing happened. And if, if you recall, when we've talked about that on air, we certainly had our opinions about it. Um, but I was unsure. I don't know. Yeah. Still unsure. Still not sure, which is part of our opinion. Um, and everyone who is sure is wrong because you can't be sure like this uh, unless – well, no, you really can't. You can't. Um, she says she didn't do the thing. They said, well, she tested with this thing and who knows how. And and everyone started falling on other sides. Well, the point is that kind of unsettled the group a bit, or it seemed to at least. Things shook up for a while. Some people left. Some new people came on. Um, but over the course of that time, that's when people started really starting to ask some harder questions of the athletes in the group. And it became apparent to many that, Coach Jerry Schumacher is not the most flexible guy, and it is not terribly personal in the way he works with athletes. And so that's not uncommon at high-level coaching. Um, but what it produced was a sense that some runners would say, well, I just the way he did things was not effective for me. And so even though I might be the best 800-meter runner in the country this year, I'm leaving the group. because this about Woody working. Kincaid? Well, I'm talking like about all sorts of people. But he was yeah. five when Kate Grace left, Woody Kincaid, you know, so like, like a lot of big-name people leaving who had been highly successful. So that's one consideration. That's a piece of the puzzle. But things accelerated recently when Jerry Schumacher was then offered and accepted the job, the coaching job for track and field at Oregon, like the the university. And that of course is a big position. Um, Oregon's like the flagship of distance running in terms of like, you know, their Nike headquarters is right there. And so it, it's just like this, the place where distance running has its fame, right? Um, even though there's plenty of schools that are much more accomplished, but point is it's a big job. And so how can you be the coach at a big university job and the coach of a pro team, which is itself a full-time job. Let's not, let's not belittle. That was a full-time job. So you can't, right? You can't do both of them fully. No one can. So what gives? Well, it happens to be the case that it's obvious to those involved that Schumacher's priority is with Oregon much more than with the, the, his pro club. Um, and so some things happen, like they required the pro team to move its locations, its, its base location to a new place, um, where Oregon is. Uh, so they could, you know, still maintain the club together well that that didn't strike well for a lot of the athletes partly because it's like um you know we have kind of start setting up roots in the place where we are but also like we don't like the place we're moving to as far as for training purposes it's not better um but they don't get a say that's not good when you take away an athlete's autonomy to that degree that's not ideal and then further within that dynamic is the reality that the coach is not attending to the athletes as much as he was before, which already he had a kind of a semi-bad rap for how he approached um, supporting his athletes in general. And I shouldn't, I, I'm not here to criticize Schumacher. He does great work and many athletes have adored him over the years. It's, it's not like he's like some, you know, rotten tomato in the bunch or anything. But when you're already not necessarily personal as a pro athlete might desire and then your priority and your focus is now entirely elsewhere. That Things aren't going to last. They're just simply not going to. And the club has been falling apart. Um, not that they're doing things poorly. They're falling apart in the sense of the athletes are leaving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. their performance is still there. Yeah, At they're still Cranny performing. At least is rumored to also be leaving. Yeah, that we don't have confirmation on that. Some people who think that they do are saying things. And so they might be right. But 
At least Cranny's another major name in the group. Um, she was the top top yeah. female U.S. Carissa um, Schweitzer, who well, is is she still with them? She's still with them, but she she just had another surgery, and oh. so like you know things have been a struggle for her. Um, there was Elise Cranny and Munson and Natasha Rogers that were like the yeah. three person show for the U.S. women's distance athletes on the yeah. track, and Elise Cranny is one of them. So yeah. Not to say that because they're also signing some new talent still, which s- someone should have advised these guys not to sign with this group right now. This is a bad moment to sign with the group. Or it's the best. Well, I guess there's possibly. room for them. There's room for them. There might be money. Well, who knows? I don't know what their story is with their funding. But Charles Hicks from Stanford, cross country NCAA champion, big name. He signed with them. Duncan Hamilton. Uh, I don't remember exactly where he's from, but he's the steeplechaser NCAA oh, right, right. legend. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, other, among others, they they have new talent as but well. That, see, that kind of, like, here I am speculating, which I shouldn't do. But <laughs> those are the younger guys. They're moving anyway, and they're going to fit right in with the university team. College they probably town. will do workouts with the team, Who things knows? of that nature. Who knows? But things don't look ideal and this makes me think okay all of this is i'm seeing this news i'm like okay this is actually this shouldn't surprise us because if you pay if you've paid attention over the last several decades of distance running not that we've we've been paying attention for several decades because you know lifespan and stuff but we have noticed some trends and one of them in u.s distance running is that the club scene is terrible and I don't know that I can speak directly to the causes, except that I guarantee one of them is how they're funded. But the point is the club scene is terrible insofar as it's it's highly transient. You have this, this major rise of a club where it's like dominant and it lasts for a certain period of time and then it all falls apart. And it happens every single time. Not that the clubs completely collapse and disappear, but that their meteoric rise is met immediately with stagnation and then a slight decline to the point where they're just kind of barely part of the conversation and that has happened with almost every single major pro team in the u.s in the last 20 to 40 years except for future podcast guests group well so which is the brooks hansen's distance project they're an interesting case but at the same time they still represent the same conversation which is they've had this like major rise and then kind of a stagnation and they've just drifted behind the scenes now they've also had moments where they've risen again yeah. And so that's well, that, that's a testament. Well, not extinguished. Right. Yeah. Now, I have to say, part of the reason, and this is important, part of the reason for, for the Hanson's Distance Project stability, in a sense, over the years, is that they are bound to something else that's more stable, namely a running store. They are not a Brooks team, although they are. They are a running store's team. And the running store maintains what it takes to keep that team in its place they're passionate about it because the owners are passionate they're the coaches of the pro team so sure yeah. sure and so that's different right because nike runs bowerman track club nike runs oregon track club like all of these situations right it's a brand sponsorship but brands are fickle and when things aren't going super well they start pulling funding and things like that but you can't do that to a pro team because the pro team has to have stability. And so they collapse. And it usually takes, as it were, about eight years or so. If you look at the timelines, that tends to be a common, maybe it's eight to ten years. But that's about the amount of time when you see a pro team that has risen high and then starts to fall apart. 
And I really wish that we could figure that out <laughs> so that we have a more stable club season, club world in the United States represents something like Japan's corporate club scene, which is crazy. It's just amazing. Or represents something like Europe's club scene, which depending on where you are, but certainly like the United Kingdom, for instance, has a great club scene. Why can't we figure it out in the U.S.? That's that's what I'm wondering. So watch and see what happens to Bowerman Track Club. So this next bit in the world of running, Zach got really excited about and did some research and things. So hopefully it is as exciting to you as it was to him when you spent an hour making this list. Oh, it's probably more than an hour. <laughs> well, okay, so uh, we'll try to be concise and just share a couple of the highlights. But the, the Olympic rankings were announced. And so um, it's always kind of an official moment where it's like, all right, here's the publication of the current state of the rankings. And now you know who is currently slated to qualify. Um, and that doesn't mean individuals are automatically qualified, but it means like, for instance, how do you know, or, or how many rather spots are available to a team like the United States or Canada or something, right? And it has to do with how many qualifications you have. So if, for instance, a country has one marathoner who has qualified, that means that country can only send one marathoner. So in the United States, if we only have two marathoners who have qualified, even if you're top three in the U.S. Olympic trials, you wouldn't go unless you are also qualified because you can only send two if they've only got two who are qualified. That's It's confusing because they've changed all the rules, but, but that's how it works. And so now we kind of have a better idea of things. And it is fascinating to look at how things break down from a kind of international standpoint. Um, so this is less about the individuals for a little bit here and more about like where are people who are running fast and what are they doing? So... Now, they call them quotas, and each event has a quota, a certain number, who are going to be uh, in the event. And so you have a field size, and with that field size, you have some kind of restrictions on some things. Um, how many have run the time standard, for instance, which is kind of like an automatic given you are in, but then they also fill the rest of the quota based on the world rankings. So there's some considerations there. Okay. Every country has the opportunity to send up to three athletes with a, some potential for a fourth. If you're like the defending gold medalist, if you have, there's a couple stipulations. You can be uh, a fourth for your country under certain circumstances. Um, and then, as mentioned, for anyone to qualify, you need an individual in your country either to run the time standard or to be high enough in the world rankings where you're within that quota limit. So let's talk about that here for a moment. All right, women's 5,000. In the 5,000, the, the quota limit, the field size is 42. So 42 runners in the entire world get to run the 5,000. Um, and as it were, it's it's pretty heavily dominated by just a few places. There are three Ethiopians in the top five, which is amazing, and mm. nine in the top 16. So that tells you a little bit about like Ethiopia's dominance here. That's going to be a theme, by the way. And then 14 in the top 42. So of the top 42, those quotas... 14 of them are 14 within that window. Now, this is confusing. I was explaining this to Andy and it got confusing. So when I say 14 Ethiopians are within the top 42, that doesn't mean 42 uh, minus 14 is the rest of the field. That means that three of those 42 numerically are Ethiopian and 11 more don't count against that 42 because they're not the top three from their country. So remember, only the top three count from their country. But it tells you that... There are not that many runners in the world, and of them, 
14 Ethiopians are as good as like everybody else, right? So nine Kenyans and seven Americans as well, which means between those three countries, the bulk of the 42 field size Don't is from Don't graze on that places. seven Americans. Woot, woot. Yeah, right on. Mm. All right, now how about the men's 5,000? Okay, so this is interesting. This one is way more balanced internationally, which mm. I find to be just fascinating. So yes, there are things like the top three spots of the men's 5,000 are all Ethiopians which is really crazy and very impressive. But if you go look at the whole top 42 field size, um, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight countries that have three or more qualified, which is, that's like half the field is, you know, three qualifiers from a country is massive, but none of them have more than six within that window. So that just tells you like the, the breadth caliber in distance running and the men's 5,000 globally is something. So like France has four, Great Britain has four, Kenya has five, Ethiopia has five, Norway has six, and the United States has six, which is you know, shout out to USA. Um, despite the fact that the first one is not very far up on the list, they still have six. It's kind of kind of fascinating stuff. How about the women's 10,000? Now these field sizes are small because the 10,000 has no preliminary rounds. Straight to, final. straight to final. So there's 27. I wonder where they came up with that number. 27 hmm. it's not 25 or 30 it's 27 okay well that's how many um 11 women in the world have run the time standard for the olympics the olympic standard that tells you that's a tough that's standard, a tough standard. <laughs> that's a tough standard and in fact we'll get to the men in a moment which is even tougher but 11 so that's difficult only one of them is an american by the way and alicia munson's done some really crazy impressive things and yet she's the only american to have run that time standard it tells you something about it um at that being the case also there's there's not a lot but there's a handful of countries with three qualifiers still and that says you know in, in a field of 27 that there are these are like the elite countries right that they have more three or more runners qualified in that field ethiopia kenya netherlands great britain and usa right on how about in the men's 10,000? Kenya has six before any other countries first, except what? Ethiopia. <laughs> oh, except Ethiopia. Yes. So okay. Kenya and Ethiopia. But Kenya has six before the next countries first beyond Ethiopia. So that their depth is insane. Eight men in total in the whole world have the standard, the time standard. And, and most of them are Kenyan. So that like that, that is by far the hardest time standard of all of them. As far as the events, or maybe you could say the men in the world are just worst at the 10,000, but whatever you want to say to interpret it, that's something Kenya has 15 in the top 27 field size, which that's wow. amazing. And there's only three countries that have three in that 27 field size hmm. says something. Well, actually what it says is that it's quite spread out. Uh, once again, it means that you have a lot of representation from a lot of different places instead of all of it from like, you know, just a few. So Ethiopia, USA, Kenya all have three. All right. How about the women's 1500? The field size is 45 because we have heats of that. And there are eight Americans in the list, which makes me very proud. It's the most of any country. I'm proud. That Yeah. I'm proud of our That's 1500 depth. meter women. That's really good. But don't necessarily be too proud. Better than Ethiopia's six and Great Britain's six. But our USA's is 14th, starting at 14th. Yeah. So the top, that top? the top qualifier is not super high up on the list. Men's 1500 is, among all the other events, has the most variety in terms of global representation as far as what we could evaluate as we're looking through things. And that is 
awesome. So you have 20 places, right, with 12 different countries. The top 20 places have 12 different countries in the men's 1500. And Great Britain and USA have the most depth, as it were. Hmm. Six for Great Britain and seven for the United States. Women's marathon is very respectable for the U.S. women. But we will get to that in a moment. Field size of 80. And one of the top 15 is not from Ethiopia or Kenya. And that's Ken. Safan Hassan. Which, Number two is on the list. Is she going to run it or not? We have no idea what she's going to do in the Olympics. she's qualified for four events. Yeah, or that's, could be, I that's guess. Something worth, yeah, that's something worth dwelling on. Safan Hassan is the only runner who is qualified in four different disciplines. That's impressive. Yeah. Incredibly impressive. I don't I don't know if anyone else ever has been. I, I want to look this up. 1,500, 5,000, 10,000, and marathon for one Olympics. Hmm. What? That's crazy. 74 Ethiopians have run the time of 227 or faster. What? <laughs> That's the that Olympic standard. Yes. 74. <laughs> Four Ethiopian women have bested the time of 2.27. For the Olympic standard. 40 Kenyans. Oh, my goodness. So. There's not that many women who have run that time. Well, I mean, there's obviously yeah. 100 plus some. There's a, it's almost 200. But um, 74 of them Ethiopian and 40 are Kenyan. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. So about, about the people who have qualified individually 106 are ethiopian and 60 are kenyan although of course they can't take those spots because, yeah because you only get three yeah so they're not gonna fill the size of the field up which is 80 80 in the field 42 total countries are included in the top 80 which that's respectable 42 yeah. countries but you didn't put the how many american women you yeah. told me i don't, I don't know exactly what as you're researching i'm not gonna we, we don't have a good amount of american women that's all i gotta say about that a I'm handful excited. now so <laughs> the, um yeah it's it, it's fair um this is good a good understanding then so we say the top 80 spots how many people are contained in the top 80 spots and so that's that's where we get that those weird numbers there's 272 women in the top 80 spots in terms of rankings because once you are outside of the top three in your country you don't count against the total anymore so that's why we say okay there's 272 women of those 272 106 are ethiopian and 60 are kenyan which means like you know more than half from two countries wow okay last one is men's marathon this is i think where you're getting the usa number that you were thinking about but well, maybe not. Um, no. Okay, you're thinking about the women's. All right. So in the men's marathon, uh, it's it's worth mentioning because I was talking I was talking with someone recently who has been on the pro scene. Um, I'm not going to say who, and I I asked the question about uh, you know funding like so uh, American distance runners. You can be the best American distance runners in the country and in the history of the country, and you're still not making that much money compared to like, you know, pro baseball players or something. Right. Um, and, and his response was, yeah, well the top American distance runners aren't the best in the world. The ones who are the best in the world are making lots of money. And I was like, Oh, that's an interesting thought because in fact, that's true most of the time. And so, um, but his, his comment was, but yeah, runners don't make nearly as much as other sports, of course. Um, so here's how it goes, right. In the men's marathon, the top, American marathoner 
is bested by 48 Kenyans and 39 Ethiopians. So that contextualizes how competitive the marathon scene is, certainly globally. There are 311 men in those top 80 spots. And of those 311, this is where things get crazy. As mentioned, Kenya and Ethiopia have strong representation. Kenya has 111 of them. One third are Kenyan. Ethiopia has 65, which is about a fifth. And Japan has 51, which is about a sixth. So if you do the math here, a third, a fifth, and a sixth all added together means almost two-thirds of the entire qualifying field in the men's marathon are from Japan, Ethiopia, and Kenya. That's crazy. That's, that's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's a big chunk. And the, the next best country in terms of volume of runners in that, in that 311 is USA with 17. So that tells you something. If you want to be good in the marathon for men, you need to be Japanese, Ethiopian, or Kenyan, apparently. No, that's not true because there's, of course, lots of individuals in there. It's just not as deep. It's not as deep. All right. Well, that's all we have for the world of running this week. But, of course, we can get nerdy with you next week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know Zach loves it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week.